documents linked to accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein go public. Many of the names in them were people who'd already been identified. It's Thursday, January 4th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about President Biden's goals for the new year. Also, the connection between Iran and three key militant groups, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis. They very cautiously unleashed the whole network of armed gangs that they run in the Arab world that they call the axis of resistance. Plus, the precautions and safety measures that help people survive this week's earthquake in Japan. And this hour, we hear from a Harvard doctor on new strategies to reduce stress and build resilience. Mostly sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Speaker Mike Johnson led a Republican delegation to the southwest border yesterday to highlight the migrant crisis. As NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports, GOP lawmakers say record levels of migration mean Biden administration policies should change. Speaker Johnson says President Biden should reinstate policies limiting who can enter the U.S. and request asylum. At a Texas press conference, he said immigration is his party's top priority. With each passing day, each record broken, this administration's dereliction of duty becomes more and more dangerous and more and more infuriating. And we are here to say that it must stop. House conservatives say they will not vote for a must-pass spending bill unless the House GOP immigration bill becomes law. And many argue new Ukraine aid must be paired with border policy changes. A bipartisan Senate group and the White House are negotiating proposals to reduce the surge at the border. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says a bipartisan deal would put pressure on House Republicans to back a compromise. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is traveling to the Middle East today. This comes after the assassination of a top Hamas leader in Beirut. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv Israel has not claimed responsibility for it. The head of Mossad says the Israeli intelligence agency will hunt down every Hamas member involved in the October 7th attacks on Israel, no matter where they are. David Barnea's comments at a predecessor's funeral are perhaps the clearest indication yet that Israel was behind the strike in Lebanon that killed the top Hamas leader. Barnea compared it to how Mossad agents tracked down Palestinian militants who killed Israeli athletes at the 1972 Munich Olympics. Israel has been on high alert for an uptick in already near daily cross-border rocket attacks from the Hezbollah militia in Lebanon. Meanwhile, the fighting continues in Gaza, where health officials say more than a dozen people have been killed in Israeli attacks today in the Strip South. The Palestinian Red Crescent says one of its offices was targeted there. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Ukraine and Russia have announced the largest exchange of prisoners since the war broke out nearly two years ago. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney reports the deal was mediated by the United Arab Emirates. Among those returning to Ukraine include soldiers that defended Mariupol and Azovstal and those captured at Snake Island in February of 2022 in the early days of the war, according to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. In exchange, Russia received 248 soldiers, according to the Minister of Defense there. In their statement, they called the deal, quote, complex. It was facilitated by the United Arab Emirates. The last POW exchange between Russia and Ukraine was in August of 2023. Alyssa Nadwarny, NPR News, Kyiv. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, Dow futures are higher. You're listening to NPR. 
Authorities in Newark, New Jersey, are looking for suspects in the shooting death of a local imam. Hassan Sharif was shot several times outside his mosque as he arrived for prayer. He died in a hospital. New Jersey's attorney general says no one has been arrested, but he did say officials do not have information to say the shooting was motivated by hatred. One of the last living sanitation workers to march with Martin Luther King in Memphis before his assassination has died at the age of 92. Elmore Nickelberry helped fight for better working conditions and higher pay for striking black workers. From member station WKNO, Katie Reardon has more. In 1968, Nickelberry and his fellow workers banded together to demand just treatment following the death of two of their colleagues in a trash compactor. The sanitation strike brought Dr. King to Memphis. While the civil rights icon elevated their struggle, Nickelberry told NPR in 2018 it was also a painful memory because of King's subsequent assassination. I don't like to talk about it. You feel mighty bad. A man come help you and then he couldn't kill That's bad. Nickelberry continued as a city sanitation employee until retiring in 2018 at the age of 86. For NPR News, I'm Katie Reardon in Memphis. The first large-scale wind farm that is situated offshore has sent its first electricity batch to Massachusetts. Officials with Vineyard Wind report the wind turbine is not yet fully up to speed. But the officials say five wind turbines should be fully operational in several weeks. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is W.B. War in Boston. We're hearing from former Harvard President Claudine Gay about her decision to step down. She writes in the New York Times that she hopes by stepping down, she'll, quote, deny demagogues the opportunity to further weaponize her presidency in what she calls a campaign against Harvard. Gay also acknowledges that her congressional testimony last year on dealing with alleged anti-Semitism on campus could have been better. But she calls that hearing a well-laid trap. Gay resigned Tuesday after questions about her testimony and allegations of plagiarism in her academic work. The number of viral respiratory infections in Massachusetts is on the rise. That includes the flu, COVID, and RSV. Dr. Larry Madoff is with the State Department of Public Health. He says the end of December and beginning of January is traditionally the beginning of the peak respiratory infection season, and this year is no different. About one in six people who visits an emergency department is doing so because of a respiratory infection. That's high. And as I say, it's at a time of year when we would expect it to be high. Madoff says the best way to prevent the spread of illnesses is to get your COVID and flu shots. He also recommends you wash your hands frequently and stay home if you're sick. Boston is out with a long-term plan for its school buildings. District officials call it a framework for much-needed change. WBMOR's Max Larkin reports the plan is high on ambition but short on details. Most of Boston's school buildings were built before World War II. Dozens are under capacity after declining enrollment. With few specifics, the new plan imagines a future of newer, larger, and fewer schools citywide. Boston Teachers Union President Jessica Tang calls it a crucial first step, but she hopes the district will seek more input from school communities as it makes concrete changes. Parents and students and educators are also (laughs) very smart. We might have other ideas and solutions too. And having a real authentic opportunity to share those ideas, I think, is going to be critical. 
The plan leaves room for the consolidation or closure of between 14 and 60 schools. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The UMass Lowell Inn and Conference Center will begin housing newly arrived migrant families this week. The former hotel and dormitory facility has some 250 rooms available for emergency shelter. The state is working to open temporary overflow sites after capping the shelter system at 7,500 families late last year. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Deloitte. Advancing the future takes more than a business angle or a technology angle. It takes both. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash U.S. slash Engineering Advantage. The Bruins are back home tonight to play the Pittsburgh Penguins. Boston's new professional women's hockey team lost its debut game. Boston lost to Minnesota 3-2 last night in Lowell. There are some scattered flurries out there this morning. It'll be mostly cloudy today in the 40s, clearing overnight with temperatures dropping to around 20. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-30s, cloudy on Saturday, and snow mixed with rain moves in overnight and will last through the day on Sunday. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Sammy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. The Biden campaign is preparing this weekend to move the 2024 campaign into a higher gear. Candidate Joe Biden will mark January 6th with a speech near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where the campaign says he'll reflect on the attack on the U.S. Capitol and a pervasive risk to democracy. At the same time, the administration of President Joe Biden is laying out its priorities for 2024. While he runs for president, he's also still running the country. Here to talk about those priorities is White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Good morning and Happy New Year. Good morning, Leila. Thank you so much for having me and Happy New Year to you, too. So it's the start of the year. Is It's the time when presidents focus on priorities in preparation for the State of the Union speech. So what are the president's priorities, particularly given that he's currently unable to push through the most basic function of government, which is funding? So really quickly, I do want to take a bit of a step back, and I'll be very quick here. If you look at the last three years, this president has been able to do more in the last three years than most presidents accomplished in two terms, right? If you think about him passing historic legislation on investing in our infrastructure, semiconductors, climate, and lower prescription drug prices, all of those are so critical and important. And last year, as you as you mentioned, uh, Leila, the State of the Union, last year in the State of the Union, he talked about finishing the job or finishing the job to quote him uh, precisely mm-hmm. and what he wants to continue to do all those all those uh, priors that I just listed we got to protect them but also continue to implement those, those bills right the bills are so critical like capping insulin at 35 bucks for every American and negotiating lower prices on more drugs closing those tax loopholes for millionaires and billionaires the wealthiest Americans among us and corporations banning junk fees that's something that is the banning ban, banning junk fees is so critical because if you look at your credit card bills, when Americans look at the credit card bills or their banking bills or, you know, as some of them were, fly, were flying around staying at hotels, they tend to be these junk fees uh, that cost Americans so much money. And the president has done the work to get rid of that, making sure gas prices go back down. And we are in 28 states. We're seeing gas prices under three bucks. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are so critical, making sure fentanyl is not in our communities, you know, ro- making road the law of the land. 
All of these things are so critical, and it's also part of his unity agenda that he talked about at the State of the Union last year. So there's more work to be done. We want to continue to build on the successes that this president has had in these past three years. Now, these accomplishments that you just listed, I mean, from infrastructure to climate to the handling of the economy, despite the accomplishments, polls suggest somehow it's not really resonating with the public in the ways uh, that the administration had hoped. Why do you think that is? So I'll say this. Coming out of 2023, we saw some really important data. And the data showed that Americans are indeed starting to feel the impact of what we call binomics. And so you saw consumer sentiment soared 14% last month, the largest one-month increase in over a decade. That matters. Inflation expectations fell. Americans are more optimistic about their personal finances. So look, there's more work to be done. That's something that the president understand. I talked about Big Pharma. I talked about, you know, beating Big Pharma, being able to lower, continue to lower prescription drugs, capping that insulin at 35 bucks a month for all Americans, you know, strengthening the supply chain so Americans could get the products they need when they need them. So there's definitely more work to be done, you know, and here's the thing. There is a contrast here that we have to make very clear. You know, we thought we think about what congressional uh, Republicans have been done, been doing their plan to, they don't have a plan to lower class costs. They just don't. They continue to focus on what they call magonomics. That's not what we call it. That's what they call it. And it gives tax giveaways for the wealthy and big corporations, cutting Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Remember in the State of the Union last year when the president called them out, uh, called out the House Republicans in the room and on when they were talking about Social Security, Medicaid and, and Medicaid. And the president said, do you, want, do you want to help me protect those things? That's what the president wants to do. And so there is a contrast there, contrast there, what we're trying to do and what uh, Republicans are trying to do. But we have shown the work. It comes out of the comes through the data and you see that. Now, Republicans have been very critical of President Biden around immigration, right wing Republicans more specifically. That was the focus of the House Speaker's trip to the border yesterday, where he blamed the president, called it a catastrophe, threatened to vote against government funding if the U.S. border with Mexico isn't, quote, shut. I mean, is the president willing to make concessions on border policy to get that funding? So a couple of things there, Leila. So right now, for the past couple of weeks and months, there has been, there has truly been a bipartisan conversation on the Senate side with Republicans and Democrats, obviously, to talk about budget negotiations. And the president believes that we need to have a bipartisan agreement to get to the root and the cause and how to deal with uh, what's happening at the border. He wants to see policy changes and funding. But look, you asked me about Speaker Johnson, and I, you know, I have to address that. Last May, last May, Speaker Johnson and the House Republicans voted to eliminate over 2,000 Border Patrol agents. And in mid-December, even as the president was negotiating, having conversation with Republicans and Democrats in the Senate for a bipartisan agreement, Speaker Johnson and the House Republicans, they went home. Leila, they went home. And so right now, instead of doing the, the, their job and joining the Biden administration and, and, and doing what we expect them to do and find a common ground, that's what the American people want them to do. Instead, they're doing these political stunts, right? There is a real request that the president has before Congress, the supplemental request, national security supplemental request. And the, pres- the reason why the president put it forward is because he find- he knows it's important to make sure that the border is taken care of. He understands that it is critical that we deal with our national security issues. But House Republicans continue to obstruct. And that's the reality that we're in. But right how now. do you get anything done then? It, I mean, these are part, they're part of the political process. I mean, how do you get anything done? 
It's a really good question, and that's what we've been doing. That's why we've been having those conversations with Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, and it it continued over the holidays to find a real solution for the border, to find a bipartisan agreement. Let's not forget, and I know you've reported on this, this is, when you think about the immigration system, it has been broken for decades, Mm -hmm. for decades, and the president took this very seriously at the first day, first day in his administration and putting forth an immigration comprehensive legislation to Congress. And that's how seriously this president has taken it. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you, Leila. Appreciate it. A federal judge in Manhattan released a trove of documents yesterday naming, for the first time, dozens of powerful men who allegedly had ties to convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein before his death by suicide in 2019. They include politicians such as Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, the actor Kevin Spacey, and magician David Copperfield, among many others. Now, to be clear, the fact that these men are named doesn't mean they did anything wrong or face criminal allegations. These documents also include testimony and eyewitness accounts that claim to paint a more detailed portrait of Epstein's secretive world, a world where women were allegedly exploited, sexually assaulted, and raped. For more, we're joined by NPR's Brian Mann. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Layla. Okay, so you've been digging through these documents with a team of our reporters. What have you found? So these documents compiled as part of a civil case show that Epstein, a registered sex offender, continued to move for years in elite circles, associating with people like Prince Andrew, uh, the prominent attorney Alan Dershowitz, the musician Michael Jackson is named here, a former U.S. senator from Maine believed to be George Mitchell, also former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, as you mentioned, Donald Trump, and also former Vice President Al Gore. Uh, Former President Bill Clinton's name comes up frequently in these documents. And and again, being named here doesn't reflect wrongdoing. Most of these people, including Clinton, have said they had no awareness of Epstein's alleged crimes. But the documents also include repeated claims that these social gatherings of powerful men included young women, some of them minors, Mm. arranged by Epstein and by his accomplice, Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell, of course, is now serving a 20-year prison sentence on federal sex trafficking charges linked to her work for Epstein. And what do the documents tell us about what was happening at these gatherings? So Epstein hosted people for these really lavish gatherings at his homes in New York City and Palm Springs and at his mansion on a private island in the Virgin Islands. There are hundreds of pages here, Layla, of previously redacted depositions from Ghislaine Maxwell and others employed by Epstein that offer really salacious details of conversations where powerful men allegedly express interest in young women. One witness claims Britain's Prince Andrew groped her breast. There are also police records here in these documents detailing investigations into Epstein after young women claimed he coerced them into sexual acts and prostitution. Over the years, dozens of women have come forward claiming Epstein sexually assaulted and exploited and raped them. Some say they were minors when these alleged crimes happened. Epstein took his own life in prison while awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges. Wow. I mean, you mentioned he took his life. That was four years ago. Why are we just learning of these details and these names now? Yeah, one thing these documents show is it took a really long time to hold Epstein accountable. He was first investigated in 2006, but was allowed to plead to relatively minor state prostitution charges. At that time, after lengthy negotiations with Epstein's powerful team of attorneys, federal investigators decided not to prosecute him, and the DOJ has since acknowledged that decision reflected poor judgment. 
Epstein then went on leading this lifestyle, hanging out with the rich and powerful, often with young women in tow for years and years. And he might very well have gotten away with all of this, and the public would never have learned of his alleged crimes, except that the Miami Herald published an expose that finally led to federal charges. The newspaper also fought for five years in court to have these documents made public. One of his victims said on social media this week that this moment and the release of these names finally brings some transparency and accountability. NPR's Brian Mann talking about new court disclosures in the Jeffrey Epstein case. Thanks, Brian. Sure. Glad to. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, there's been no snow so far this year in Minnesota, and small businesses there that depend on it are struggling. It's 720. Most Americans who have trouble hearing are not using hearing aids, but a new study found that people who do use them may have a longer lifespan. Hearing loss, such as an invisible problem, and it happens gradually, that it takes time for you to get used to hearing aids and then get benefit from it. I'm Juana Summers. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Highs in the low 40s today under mostly cloudy skies. It clears up tonight as temperatures fall to the low 20s. Sunny to end the week tomorrow will have highs in the mid-30s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. Stress is a chronic problem for many people, and a recent survey by the American Psychological Association finds that nearly half of adults in this country wish they had someone to help them manage their stress levels. If you're looking to get a handle on stress in the new year, there is a new book to help with that. NPR's Ridu Chatterjee spoke to the author and brings us some tips. For many years, Harvard physician Dr. Aditi Nerukar counseled patients struggling with symptoms of too much stress. She gave them science-backed tools and strategies to recover and cope better in the long run. Now she's written up those tips in her new book, The Five Resets. The Five Resets has been laid out to be a roadmap. The first step on that roadmap is to find what she calls the MOST goal. MOST is an acronym, M-O-S-T. M for motivating, O for objective and measurable, S for small, and T for timely. 
What you want to do when you create your most goal is ask yourself the question, what matters to me most? She says studies show that when someone focuses on what matters most to them, it makes the goal feel more doable. The rest of Nirukar's book has a range of tools to achieve that goal. They're all simple daily practices that lower the amount of stress someone experiences every day. Her second reset is about finding quiet in a noisy world, for example, by limiting how much we interact with our phones. Studies have shown that, on average, adults check their phone 2,617 times a day. She says surveys even show that over 50% of people check their phones within five minutes of waking up, and some even before their second eye is open. They are scrolling through the headlines or social media or their email. Think about what that is doing to your brain and your body. Think about what that's doing to your stress. She suggests not having the phone nearby at night so you can't reach for it as soon as you wake up. So when you open your eye, give your body and brain the ability to open the other eye and just rest in the moment, acclimate to the morning, the light, giving yourself that little moment of pause, of grounding at the start of your day can be a game changer. During the day too, she suggests keeping the phone in a drawer or somewhere out of reach so we don't give in to the urge to check it all the time. Narukar's third reset includes ways to sink the brain and body to counter the effects of stress. One of them is a quick deep breathing exercise called Stop, Breathe, Be that she's been using for years. When I had a busy clinical practice and I was a medical resident in training and I would see 30 patients a day. And so as I would knock on the patient door before entering the next room, I would stop, breathe and center myself and just be. It's three seconds. And I would say this to myself under my breath, stop, breathe and be. And when repeated throughout the day, she says, the practice can significantly lower one's stress. For her fourth reset, she suggests coming up for air by taking regular breaks. There are many ways that you can engage and really honor your breaks, stretching, taking a quick walk, you know, walking around outside your building. If you work from home, going outside, doing a fake commute. She says studies show that even a five or 10 minute break a few times a day can lower overall stress and boost cognition and productivity. Narukar's fifth and final reset has ways to counter one of the most common impacts of stress on our psyches, making us more negative. So when there is a negative experience, it becomes sticky in your brain like Velcro. The same amount of good and bad may be happening to you at the same time. But when you're feeling a sense of stress, you hold on to those negative experiences. And a proven way to make the brain less sticky for negative experiences, she says, is a daily practice of gratitude journaling. Writing down five things that happened that day that you're grateful for. Gratitude shifts your brain away from Velcro to Teflon. And it does that through the scientific principle of cognitive reframing. Essentially what that means is what you focus on grows. Regardless of which of these resets you might pick for yourself, Narukar cautions to only pick two at a time. She calls it the resilience rule of two. The resilience rule of two is how your brain responds to change. Change is a stressor for your brain. Even positive changes in your life can be a stress. So picking two things at a time, she says, will make it more likely for those changes to stick and become daily habits. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News.
Reducing stress may be on your list of New Year's resolutions along with other seemingly achievable goals for this year. In fact, a 2019 survey by the polling firm YouGov said that around one-third of us will make a New Year's resolution. So, Leila, what are some of your resolutions? Well, I had planned to work out every day and be nice. present, but I've worked out no days <laughs> And I do doom scroll on Instagram, so I don't know if it's going very well. So how about you, A, any more successful? Well, one thing, you've seen my office, so I'm planning to not buy any more superhero toys. I mean, I'm half a century old. I mean, it's enough already. It's crazy, <laughs> all right? But the other thing, too, is just try and get seven hours of sleep every night. That's what I'm going for. Mm. Every night, seven solid hours if I can. So there you go. But see, all of this is not just about you and me, Layla. That's right. We want to hear about you. We're planning a segment next week looking at why our New Year's resolutions often don't survive the first week of January, like mine. And if that's you, shoot us an email or voice memo at morningedition at npr.org. Include your name, age, and where you're from. And tell us about that New Year's resolution that you broke, how far you got, and why you broke it. No judgment. We promise. I don't promise a thing. Someone <laughs> from our team may reach out to you. And again, that's Morning Edition, one word at npr.org. Well, A's going to judge, but I'm not going to judge because I've already broken mine. So. <laughs> There's no A in judge, but there should be. <laughs> Happy New Year. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. It took 20 years to prepare, but a parcel of land in Georgia is finally ready to be a new home for endangered woodpeckers. It's 7.29. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Several previously sealed court documents related to the late Jeffrey Epstein have been released. They're from a defamation lawsuit by Virginia Jufrey against Epstein's former girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell is in prison for sex trafficking. NPR's Brian Mann has more. What we're seeing here is really a, a paper trail that came up during litigation that points to alleged friendships and associations between Epstein and all these powerful figures, some extending well after he became a registered sex offender and one deposition a woman who says she was exploited by Epstein sexually then goes on to talk about being present with other powerful men who she describes as Epstein associates alleged Epstein associates referring to former New Mexico governor Bill Richardson the singer Michael Jackson former president Trump all of these men, I should say, have said before they did nothing wrong. They say they were unaware of Epstein's crimes. NPR's Brian Mann, in a tour of Texas border towns where migrants have been pouring into the U.S., House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan called for an end to all processing of migrants. Or the solution is simply, I think, one sentence. No money can be used to process or release into the country any new migrants. To just say suspend it now, which the president can do. But if he won't do it, we should put that one sentence in must pass 
legislation. A bipartisan Senate group has been working on a border security deal and is calling on the House to aim for what can pass. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts officials are celebrating the first power generated by the Vineyard Wind Project. The first turbine from the wind farm off Martha's Vineyard was turned on Tuesday night. It then delivered power to the grid. The company behind the project says there's more testing to be done before more of the turbines are brought online. Edgartown Town Administrator James Haggerty says this is a big moment. Exciting news. It's a long time coming for the island. Another project is starting to come full circle. I think the community's been very supportive of their endeavors. When it's complete, Vineyard Wind will have 62 turbines and generate enough electricity for more than 400,000 homes. Officials in Lynn are stepping up security at the city's public schools. That's after multiple shootings in the city last week in which two teenagers were killed. School officials say an increase in violence is the result of gang-related activity. There will be an increased police presence at Lynn school buildings, including Lynn Classical High School. A Somerville affordable housing development is getting nearly $2.5 million from the federal government. The money will fund work at Clarendon Hill, including improving accessibility and green spaces. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley will celebrate the funding at an event later this morning. Morrissey Boulevard in Dorchester is closed right now between Columbia Road and Freeport Street. State police say that's because of a serious crash that happened around 3 this morning. At least two people were killed and two others were hurt. There's no details on when the road will reopen. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com. Boston's new pro women's hockey team made its debut last night. They lost to Minnesota 3-2 in Lowell. Boston's next game is Monday at home against Ottawa. The Bruins will be at the Garden tonight to skate with the Pittsburgh Penguins. And for the first time since 2000, no New England Patriots were selected to be on the NFL's Pro Bowl team. Mostly cloudy and highs in the low 40s today. The clouds move out tonight as it falls to the low 20s. A sunny Friday tomorrow, but colder with highs in the mid-30s. The clouds move back in on Saturday for a mostly cloudy day with highs in the upper 30s. We'll see light snow starting late Saturday night and lasting through Sunday. It's 37 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York. Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at WaltonFamilyFoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Iran, like the United States, is a key actor linked to the multiple conflicts in the Middle East right now. Iran backs Hamas in its fight against Israel, and it also supports other proxy groups across the region. Now, for a look at how Iran manages this vast network, we're joined by NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie. Greg, so start off by giving us an overview of how extensive the Iranian network is across that region. 
Yeah, if you step back from all these localized conflicts in the Middle East, most are really linked in some larger overarching way to to the the main conflict, which is Iran on one side and the U.S. and Israel on the other. Iran, which is a Persian country, supports several separate Arab groups fighting daily, really now in five separate countries against Israeli and U.S. forces. And, and certainly the focus is on Gaza, where Iran backs Hamas and its war with Israel. But Iran is also supporting militants fighting in Lebanon, Yemen, Syria, and Iraq. I spoke with Hussein Ibish at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Here's how he describes Iran's activity over the past few months. They very cautiously unleashed the whole network of armed gangs that they run in the Arab world that they call the axis of resistance. All right, so let's start off with how Iran is helping Hamas. Yeah, for many years, Iran trained Hamas. It provided the group with weapons and technical know-how for its rockets. And all this helped give Hamas the ability to carry out that major October 7th attack in Israel. But now that the war is ongoing, Hamas is essentially on its own. It's no longer getting any real help uh, from the outside from Iran or anyone else. Again, Hussein Ibish. This war demonstrates both Iran's biggest strengths and biggest weaknesses. Biggest weakness is that there's really not much they can do to strengthen Hamas's hand now that the fighting is on the ground in Gaza. He first mentioned uh, Iran's biggest strength. Uh, what's he referring to there? He's really talking in this in this case about the Houthis in Yemen. Iran has armed the Houthis in Yemen's civil war, which is a, a brutal conflict, but one that's largely been below the radar. But all of a sudden, the Houthis are now using drones, missiles, and small attack boats to cause a major disruption to international shipping in the Red Sea off the southwest coast of Yemen. Now, the U.S. Navy is beating back many of these attacks, but major commercial shippers like Maersk uh, are now avoiding the Red Sea and taking this much longer and more expensive route uh, around the southern tip of Africa. All right, let's turn out to Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, trading fire with Israel across the border there. What's the risk of escalation? So the risk is great. Hezbollah is a very strong military force with a huge supply of Iranian rockets and missiles. But so far, Hezbollah has only engaged in limited volleys with Israel. It, it shows that Iran and Hezbollah are doing something to support Hamas, and it does keep Israeli forces occupied uh, near the country's northern border. But the fighting has not become a second major front in the war. Uh, Iran and Lebanon face internal problems, uh, and they really don't seem interested in a full-scale war. So overall, is Iran pleased with the way these conflicts are playing out right now? Well, Hussein Ibish says yes. I think Iran is delighted with everything that's happened. It's reinforced their commitment to using proxy groups in the Arab world to get essentially fanatical Arabs to fight their wars for them. And we haven't even mentioned the small-scale attacks that militant factions are waging against U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq. U.S. troops have been attacked more than 100 times recently. And again, this shows Iran's broad proxy network across the Middle East. That's NPR's Greg Myrie. Thanks for breaking this down, Greg. Sure thing, eh? And now to Minnesota, which is in the middle of a historically warm and snow-free start to winter. That may mean less shoveling, but it's a big blow to skiers, snowmobilers, and other snow enthusiasts, as well as the many small businesses that depend on them. Here's Minnesota Public Radio's Dan Crocker. 
Deep in the Minnesota North Woods, about 25 miles from the Canadian border, Peter McClelland runs White Wilderness Sled Dog Adventures. Yeah, it's more like mud wilderness right now. 100 sled dogs are tied up, itching to run. Normally, um, we'd have 15 sleds going out a day, every day, this time of year. And right now, we have none. With no snow on the ground, McClelland has canceled trips through at least January 7th. He's offering discounts to customers to postpone until next season because he doesn't have enough cash to refund all their deposits. Running a sled dog business like this is a labor of love. You do it because you want to. It's great to share this with the guests that come up, but you do not make enough money to really be able to weather this kind of disaster. He still has expenses like dog food and vet bills, and he still has to exercise the dogs. But instead of using a sled, he hooks them up to an ATV. They get excited, huh? Yeah. They, the sled dogs really live for this. McClellan says he's just hoping to survive until next winter. Nearby in the small town of Finland, Minnesota, businesses that rely on snowmobilers are also struggling. This year is uh, unbelievable. I mean, we've got no snow raining, and it's really hurting us. Bob Boos runs Our Place Bar and Restaurant with his wife, Diane. The four cabins they rent are empty, and for the most part, so is the bar. Just a couple people are shooting pool. It's getting pretty deep in our pockets, getting deep into money that was put aside for retirement. Low snow years aren't unheard of in northern Minnesota. What's different this year is the uncommon warmth. Temperatures soared to over 50 degrees on Christmas Day, breaking century-old records. It was also the wettest December on record, but almost all of that precipitation fell as rain instead of snow. We're experiencing a truly great, and I don't mean necessarily good, but a truly extraordinary climate event. Kenny Blumenfeld is a climatologist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. This winter's surreal weather is driven in part by a strong El Nino, but Blumenfeld says Minnesota's winters have also grown significantly warmer over the past several decades. And that's wreaked havoc on some cherished winter traditions in Minnesota. I'm sad. In Duluth, it's been too warm to freeze neighborhood ice rinks, which is a serious bummer for eight-year-old hockey player Felix Johnson. I would usually like to come here and like skate, but like we can't because of the warm weather. Felix's dad Keith says their neighborhood youth hockey association has postponed a big jamboree that was scheduled for this weekend. He says two years ago, they had to shorten the tournament because it was so cold. This is just like amazing to, to see the difference from year to year. But there is some hope for Minnesota winter lovers. The forecast calls for snow and colder temperatures this weekend. For NPR News, I'm Dan Crocker in Duluth. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, election officials are worried about the potential use of artificial intelligence to spread misinformation. We'll hear from the Arizona Secretary of State about what they're doing there to prevent that possibility. Low 40s and mostly cloudy today, low 20s and windy tonight. Skies clear overnight for a sunny day tomorrow in the mid-30s, then mostly cloudy and upper 30s on Saturday before WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says the snow arrives. 
Well, this will not be a blockbuster or a historic storm this weekend, but it will be the first plowable snow for many of us. Arriving late Saturday evening and continuing through much of the day on Sunday, the biggest question is where the rain snow line will set up, and that will play a big role And who sees how much snow. Any changeover, particularly for the city and at the coast, should switch back to snow on the tail end Sunday evening as the storm pulls away. Wind gusts to 40 miles per hour at the coast possible. Tough travel is likely Sunday for many of us, so stay tuned for updates in the coming days. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial, committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946 and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. Boston-based ad agency Hill Holiday is now owned by a New Zealand company. It had been owned by a New York holding company for the last 25 years. The New Zealand firm is also buying several other companies under the same umbrella. Hill Holiday says its main office will remain in the seaport. The owners of several life sciences facilities in the area have offloaded a couple of its buildings for $300 million. Alexandria Real Estate sold the buildings in Waltham and Cambridge to a California firm. Alexandria also recently sold off two industrial sites in South Boston. Rhode Island-based jewelry maker Alex and Ani is shutting down one of its last remaining stores. The Boston Globe says the store at Walt Disney World in Florida will close, despite promises last June that it would remain open. Alex and Ani once had more than 100 stores nationwide. It now has six. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Wildlife conservation can mean laboring for years without knowing if your efforts will make a difference. But recently, scientists were able to celebrate a milestone decades in the making. Here's Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting. The Flint River is hidden and dark in the pre-dawn hours, hundreds of feet below Spruill Bluff in West Georgia, where people with birding scopes and sturdy shoes have gathered, some from hours away. Okay, so we're getting ready to move out. Let me get your attention. Some, like Georgia Department of Natural Resources senior biologist Nathan Klaus, spent the early December night in the woods nearby. Thank you very much for being here. You all know how much I value, hopefully, the role that you played, each one of you, in, in getting us to this place. This place is really an ecology and a goal, which many here helped Klaus recreate over 20 years. The group is here to release six federally endangered birds, red cockaded woodpeckers, into these hills. And it took 20 years to get the birds here because first Klaus and others had to sculpt the right forest. Joyce Klaus is Nathan's wife, and she's a wildlife scientist too. She says when he first brought her to places like Spruill Bluff, they were not much to see, at least to the ecologically informed eye. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When uh, Nathan and I were first dating, it would have been 17 years ago. 
some of the places he brought me to that he was working on, I was just like, oh, that's nice, honey. (laughs) As a scientist, she wasn't so impressed. Nathan Klaus says there's a reason for that. The first photograph I have, it's a wall of sweet gum. Sweet gums are hardwoods and exactly the wrong trees for these woodpeckers. What they need are mature living pines for nesting. So Klaus got to work with a very old tool, fire. Every other year for the last two decades, Klaus and a crew under his direction would set fires like this one, recorded in 2019. The fire killed hardwoods and encouraged pines to seed in these mountains. A few months ago, U.S. Fish and Wildlife said the landscape was finally right and okayed the site for woodpeckers. Six were captured at the Army's Fort Stewart in South Georgia. They made the more than 200-mile trip and are now closed up in human-made nesting boxes inside the pine trees. And Nathan Klaus says they may be on edge. You want to give them their space. They've already been through basically an alien abduction. So why move an endangered bird from the coast to the mountains? Bob Sargent is another Georgia DNR biologist. This is um, a case of not all your eggs in one basket, right? In this analogy, the eggs are birds. And the basket is the coastal plain where most red cockaded woodpeckers live and where more disaster strikes. Now we have, you know, an increase in the number of hurricanes, for instance, coming up through the Gulf. Like Hurricane Michael in 2018, it devastated pine forests. You can lose a lot of cavity trees and a lot of clusters all at once. In the future, red cockaded woodpeckers may be safer further north in these hills. The sun is rising when the screens trapping the birds in their new holes are yanked away. The birds bolt only affording people like retired DNR biologist Jim Osier a glimpse. A glimpse of the rare birds was enough. I dreamed it, but I didn't think I'd see it. Yeah, I dreamed a lot of things that I didn't think I'd ever see. When Nathan Klaus returns to the site around Christmas, the birds are still here, evidence of a dream fulfilled. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Upson County, Georgia. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, you'll hear about the growing debate in Israel about what kind of victory is achievable against Hamas. It's 7.49. I'm Robin Young. A new investigation finds dying broke is what most older Americans are doing, and caring for a loved one is a real struggle. To deal with the emotional issues, which are huge, to deal with what this does to family dynamics, and then to add on top of it the affordability or the lack thereof makes it just confounding to many people. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The Biden administration is suing the state of Texas over its new immigration enforcement law. The first of hundreds of new court documents related to Jeffrey Epstein have been released, though much of the information was already public. And Ford is recalling more than 100,000 pickup trucks due to a rollaway risk. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. 
and Arts Emerson. The classic Moby Dick story is told anew with captivating life-size and whale-sized puppetry. January 23rd to 29th, artsemerson.org. Mostly cloudy and low 40s today, mostly clear and low 20s tonight, sunny and mid-30s tomorrow, mostly cloudy and upper 30s on Saturday with snow starting late Saturday night and lasting through Sunday. It's 37 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And i Martinez. There's a new condo boom taking shape in Florida. Older buildings, especially those near the beach, are being torn down and replaced with luxury condominiums. Homeowners in buildings put up decades ago are discovering that regulations passed after the Surfside condo collapse in 2021 have made their properties targets for developers. From Miami, here's NPR's Greg Allen. Ian Bruce Eichner says big changes are coming to Florida's condo market. It should be the most significant impact on waterfront real estate that you've ever seen in your professional lifetime. Eichner is a developer and CEO of the Continuum Company. He currently has some condo projects under construction in South Florida and says more are coming. The reason, he says, is that Florida's first generation of condominiums, buildings 50 and 60 years old, are ripe for termination. In real estate parlance, that means they'll be torn down. These buildings have two things. They're 60 years old, they're on the water, and they're in A locations, and they're crappy old buildings. Okay, that's actually three things, and the opinion of a guy who puts up new buildings for a living. But new state regulations are changing the landscape for condominium owners. After 98 people in Surfside died in the Champlain Tower South collapse, Florida lawmakers adopted measures aimed at ensuring the safety of aging buildings. The new law says condo associations must regularly assess the structural integrity of their building and fully fund reserves necessary for maintenance and repairs. To comply with the law, many condo associations are significantly raising monthly fees. And newly required inspections can lead to shockingly high special assessments, which attorney Robert Pellier says not everyone can pay. And you may have those that are on a fixed income that are retired and they may not be able to satisfy that. So some developers either, you know, ethically or unscrupulously may seek to take advantage of that financial landscape. Pellier has seen some of those developers in action. He owns a condo in a building on a particularly desirable part of Miami Beach. In Pellier's condo building, unit owners agreed to sell to a developer two years ago. But since then, he says the deal has stalled, leaving residents in limbo. And they've extended and re-extended and re-re-re-extended. You know, you can't have people trapped in a contract forever. Residents are currently suing to get the developer to follow through on the deal. Rising interest rates and steep construction costs have slowed down some of the projects. In other cases, owners are facing pressure tactics from developers who buy up other units in the building and in some cases take control of the condo association board. Matthew Zimmerman is a lawyer who represents a group of residents in that situation in West Palm Beach. They filed a lawsuit to block their condo's termination. Under the deal, Zimmerman says they were being offered just $40,000 in cash for their units, far less than what they're worth. Here's $40,000. During the hottest Florida real estate market where everyone's moving into town from New York and other places, go find a new place to live for $40,000. That would be impossible, certainly not in that area. 
Florida law requires that condo owners receive fair market value for their properties. A judge ruled that hadn't happened in this case, but the developer is appealing. For developers, the major challenge in targeting old buildings is convincing a hundred or more owners of condo units to sell. Eichner says it's not easy. Because you've got to be willing to sit in coffee shops and hold people's hands. You've got to be willing to go find the grandchild to help the grandparent relocate. Most of the people in the development business, that's not what they do. Eichner believes the current regulatory and real estate market should make it win-win for the developer and the unit owner. Condo units in these aging beachfront buildings, he says, typically sell in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. However, if you were to take the totality of the building, all of the units, and tear the building down, the land is worth a million dollars a unit. That means unit owners can get a lot more for their condos if everyone agrees to sell. But under Florida law, if just 5% of unit owners object, they can block the sale. Eichner says that's killing too many deals. He's hoping Florida lawmakers will amend the law and make it easier for developers to tear down and replace aging condominiums. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Rescue workers in Japan are still searching for survivors following a 7.6 magnitude earthquake that killed at least 60 people. Still, structural engineers say that Japan was actually ready for the disaster. Japan has a lot of earthquakes. That's Krista Luza, a structural engineer based in California. They have almost three times as many earthquakes as we see here in California. And California is considered a region of high seismicity. So... You can imagine, in Japan, they are very prepared and very aware of the hazards that they live around. That preparation makes a difference when an earthquake hits. They did lose lives, which is extremely unfortunate. But overall, comparatively, the strength of that earthquake, 7.6, they did perform very, very well. And I think that speaks to their level of preparedness the way they design, and their awareness for the environment that they are in. Luza says some buildings in Japan are equipped with some of the best earthquake-resilient technology available. A lot of their taller buildings employ dampers and base isolation, which is like the Cadillac of performance options when you come to buildings. As she puts it, high-end buildings get high-end technology. Additionally, they instrument a lot of their buildings. What that means is that after every earthquake, they have a bunch of scientific data to look at so they can continually learn and improve their practices. And they share their findings with the rest of the world. As part of the seismic design community, we feel every earthquake and we are definitely thinking about the people of Japan. As we saw in the Turkey earthquake last year, significant loss of life occurred. And we all feel that. We feel when communities don't perform, we want to all do better together. And so we really look forward to learning from Japan and from this experience so that, you know, communities around the globe can perform better. That was Krista Luza, a structural engineer based in California. A. Yes. You're in California, earthquake country. Do you have an emergency prep kit? Have one in the car, have one by the door. I do need to update them, though. That's the thing. I think sometimes you leave things and and things inside the kit, uh, you know, they get old. So you got to make sure that uh, they are up to date. And I will do that as soon as we are through with the show. Wow, I was not as prepared when I lived over there. Well, the American Red Cross has some emergency preparedness guidelines for different types of natural disasters, including earthquakes. And you can check them out online at redcross.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel. And I'm A. Martinez. Later this morning on WBUR, a conversation with Boston City Council President Ruth Z. Louisjean. Learn about what she hopes to do in her new role. Listen this morning at 11 on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Mostly overcast today, temperatures will rise to the low 40s. Clouds clear out tonight and it'll be in the low 20s. Sunny for our Friday tomorrow in the mid-30s. It grows overcast again on Saturday and will be in the upper 30s. Snow starts late Saturday night and last through Sunday. It's 37 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. is calling on the U.N. Security Council to take urgent action against Houthi rebels attacking ships in the Red Sea. It's Thursday, January 4th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Israel's intelligence chief is vowing to hunt down every Hamas member involved in the October 7th attack. But some Israelis wonder if destroying the militant group is realistic. We're talking about over 20,000 militants. We're talking about thousands of miles of underground tunnels. Also, Russia and Ukraine have completed the biggest exchange of prisoners of war yet in the current conflict. And this hour, election officials are worried about the potential use of artificial intelligence to spread misinformation. 12 months ago, you would have been able to tell pretty easily that some of the AI deepfakes were deepfakes. Now, it's much more difficult. Mostly cloudy in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A federal judge in New York has released a trove of documents naming dozens of powerful men with alleged ties to convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. NPR's Brian Mann reports the names include politicians, celebrities, and royalty. Many of the names peppered throughout these documents had already been linked to Epstein. They include Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, the actor Kevin Spacey, and magician David Copperfield, among many others. The fact that these men are named in legal filings doesn't mean they did anything wrong or face criminal allegations. These documents also reveal new testimony that claims to paint a more detailed portrait of Epstein's secretive world, where women, some of the minors, were allegedly exploited, sexually assaulted, and raped. Virginia Gouffre, one of the women who says Epstein sexually abused her, said on social media that the release of these names brings more transparency and accountability. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. Former President Donald Trump is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to decide whether he is legally eligible to appear on Colorado's primary ballot. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Trump is appealing a Colorado high court ruling that disqualified him. Lawyers for Trump say it's the first time in American history that judges would prevent voters from casting their ballots for a leading candidate in a presidential race. Trump says the issues of paramount importance as the 2024 election season intensifies. The former president says judges are taking power away from Congress and the voters, and that the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to Trump or what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, which has sued Trump, Trump in several states says the issue is about the plain text of the Constitution and the law is on their side. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. 
House Speaker Mike Johnson and dozens of congressional Republicans visited the southern border in Texas yesterday. They're demanding that President Biden do more to stop migrants from entering the U.S. illegally. Senate negotiators met yesterday to work on an immigration bill. Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona says she is committed to securing a deal. Our job is just to try and get to an agreement on a package that is reasonable, that is workable, and that actually solves the problem. But Republican negotiator Oklahoma Senator James Langford says they're not that close. HR2 is a great bill, obviously, but I'm negotiating with um, the White House that vehemently disagrees and has already said they're going to veto that and uh, Democratic Senate. Complicating matters, conservative Republicans in the House say they plan to block a separate government funding bill unless they get the immigration bill that they want. So the federal government could soon face another potential shutdown. Separately, the chair of the House Homeland Security Committee says the members will take up impeachment articles against the Homeland Security Secretary next week over the border. This is NPR News. People with hearing loss who wear hearing aids may increase the likelihood of living longer. That's according to a study published in the journal Lancet Healthy Longevity. But as NPR's Allison Aubrey reports, only about 1 in 10 people who have trouble hearing actually wear hearing aids. About 40 million adults in the U.S. have hearing loss. Left untreated, it can increase the risk of depression, social isolation, as well as frailty, falls, and cognitive decline. To evaluate whether restoring hearing with hearing aids could boost longevity, Dr. Janet Choi of the University of Southern California and her collaborators tracked the status of nearly 1,900 adults with hearing loss. Patients who have hearing loss and report that they were using hearing aids regularly had 24% lower risks of mortality. Meaning people who wear hearing aids regularly may reduce the likelihood of dying prematurely. Alison Aubrey, NPR News. There's a funeral today in Lebanon for the Hamas leader killed this week in a military strike. Israel has not claimed responsibility for the attack in Beirut. Lebanese leaders say this is a breach of their country's sovereignty. Meanwhile, Iranian-backed militants in Lebanon say they will retaliate. Russia and Ukraine have exchanged hundreds of prisoners. Russia has released more than 200 Ukrainian troops. Ukraine returned nearly 250 Russian soldiers. Meanwhile, Ukraine's president says the prisoner exchange deal was complex and it was facilitated by the United Arab Emirates. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Former Harvard President Claudine Gay is warning of what she calls a broader war against higher education. Gay resigned on Tuesday amid accusations of plagiarism. She writes in the New York Times that groups were obsessive in their scrutiny of her work. She acknowledges that she made some mistakes in it. Gay says she's faced racist threats and she believes conservative groups targeted her because she's a black woman. Gay also said she could have been more forceful in her congressional testimony about dealing with alleged anti-Semitism on campus. State senators are expected to vote today on a bill aimed at making it easier to get wheelchairs repaired. People who use wheelchairs have long complained they often wait weeks or months for fixes when the chairs break down. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, this can make it difficult to get to work and medical appointments, among other problems. 
Massachusetts has a wheelchair warranty law, but this bill would increase consumer protections. It would require warranties to last at least two years, up from one, and it would set time limits for manufacturers to assess defective chairs and provide loaners. State Senator John Cronin is the bill's sponsor. We're catching Massachusetts up to get in line with other states uh, who have stronger protections right now. Cronin's bill would also allow wheelchair users to get repairs without prior authorization from a doctor for anything expected to cost under $1,000. Similar measures have failed in the past, but Cronin thinks new public pressure will make this bill successful. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Dozens of Boston public schools could close or merge as part of the district's plans to consolidate buildings. A newly released plan says up to 60 schools could be eliminated. BPS officials say aging infrastructure and declining student enrollment are forcing the changes. The Boston Teachers Union says the city must consult community members before closing any buildings. Boston-based Big Brothers Big Sisters is celebrating its 75th anniversary. The organization's leader says there's still a need for adult volunteers. Mark O'Donnell is the president and CEO. He says the adults, known as Bigs, work one-on-one with kids, but they have a team working alongside to help. Say one child is struggling in school and was bullied and is shy. We're going to work with you as a Big to say, hey, Why don't we try doing this? How about we talk about this? So nothing is left on your own. He says the group serves 4,000 children in more than 150 communities across the state. It's 808. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. The Bruins will go for their fifth straight win tonight as they host the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Boston's new professional women's hockey team debuted last night with a loss. They fell to Minnesota 3-2 in Lowell. Mostly cloudy today. It'll be in the 40s. Clearing overnight with temperatures dropping to around 20. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-30s. Cloudy on Saturday and snow mixed with rain moves in overnight and will last through the day on Sunday. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. The killing of a senior Hamas official, Salah Aruri, in Beirut, Lebanon, is being blamed on Israel. And it's seen as a major escalation that many fear could open a new front in the war between Israel and Hamas. The blast that killed Aruri struck in a southern suburb of Beirut, a far cry from the trading of fire between Israel and the Iran-backed Lebanese militant group Hezbollah in the south of Lebanon. In a speech yesterday, the group's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, condemned the assassination. But the big question is, will Hezbollah retaliate? To talk about what Lebanon is facing, we turn to journalist and analyst Kim Rattas. She's a distinguished fellow with the Columbia Institute of Global Politics, and she joins us now from Beirut. Kim, welcome to the program. Good morning, Leila. Thanks for having me. Good morning. So, Israel has not claimed responsibility for Tuesday's attack, but Lebanon is blaming Israel, accusing it of violating its sovereignty. And last night we heard from the head of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah. After listening to his speech, Kim, how dangerous is this moment right now? Will the war spread? The risk is certainly there because uh, there are many ways in which the different parties 
in the region could misstep, miscalculate, mm-hmm. whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's the Israelis, the Iranians, or even the Americans, as we hear today that there's been a strike in Baghdad against Shia militia fighters there, which is likely to have been carried out by U.S. forces. So the risk of miscalculation is there and the risk of escalation is there. However, so far what we've seen in terms of the behavior of Hezbollah and therefore of Iran is very calculated risk taking, very calculated measures to make sure this does not go to full-blown escalation between Hezbollah and Israel. The Iranians and Hezbollah do not want a full-on war. The Americans don't want a full-on war and they've made that message very clear to um, to Israel since October 7th or October 8th, when skirmishes started between Hezbollah and, and Israel on the border. Um, now, we did hear from Hassan Nasrallah saying there will have to be some kind of response. But the sentence that struck me most um, in his speech was his word saying, if Israel wages war against Lebanon, our response will be with no limits. Mm. And so that's another way of saying that the strike conducted, if it was indeed Israel, and it most likely is, conducted against uh, the Hamas leader um, in the southern suburbs of Beirut is not, in his view, a, a strike against Lebanon, which gives them a continued way out, as I've as I've um, explained, that they are trying to toe a very careful line in how they, they manage the situation. You talk about the risk of miscalculation. I mean, that's something I've been thinking about in the sense that at what point does Hezbollah maybe, is there a red line for them? I mean, they project this image as a powerful resistance group to Israel. But so far, as you point out, they've been very careful, as has Iran. They do have a credibility problem in the face of their supporters who uh, and the Palestinians. We've heard from Hamas leaders saying, you know, we expected more support from Hezbollah after October 7th, and that has not been forthcoming. Um, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, says that they are uh, doing what is best, what is in their interest, what is in the interest of Lebanon, and what they call the axis of resistance. But they do have a credibility problem with their with their base, having for years said that they were the defenders of the Palestinian cause, uh, you hear a lot of criticism today, um, or at least uh, um, recognition that um, it's become clear that for Iran, Hezbollah serves one key purpose, which is a first line of defense for Iran itself. Should the day come where Iran feels that it might come under attack itself, it will use Hezbollah to defend itself and to um, attack Israel. And until that day comes, they would like to preserve that card uh, for themselves and not, in a way, waste it uh, in support of the Palestinians. Is there an appetite right now, though, among Lebanese for an all-out war with Israel? I mean, this is a country that's struggling. Absolutely no appetite whatsoever uh, for war with Israel or any kind of war. This is a country that has been through a terrible economic crisis over the last three years, that has lived through a huge blast at the Beirut port in 2020, the largest non-nuclear blast in modern history. This is a country that has been through 15 years of civil war from 75 to 1990, including a devastating Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, which killed 17,000 people and injured 
some 30,000 as well. And raw in people's memory is the war between Hezbollah and Israel in 2006, which was also devastating for Lebanon and saw mass evacuations across 34 days of conflict. So there is a chorus of voices in Lebanon saying, you know, we are in support of the Palestinian cause, but we've paid our dues. You know, we don't want full-on war. But unfortunately, the decision of peace and war is not in the hands of the Lebanese state. It's very much in the hands of Hezbollah. That's author Kim Ghatta speaking with us from Beirut. Thank you so much for your time, Kim. Thanks for having me. For the upcoming 2024 elections, the state of Arizona is using artificial intelligence to head off interference from artificial intelligence. The state became a hotbed of misinformation and conspiracy theories about the last general election. So Arizona Secretary of State Adrian Fontes, a Democrat, is leading the efforts to curb AI manufactured deceptions by testing some worst case election day scenarios. For example, a polling place might catch on fire or phone lines might go down. And so what we do is we are really testing how it is that our elections officials, emergency responders, law enforcement, intelligence gatherers, and all of the sort, state, federal, and local, will act and work together in case of any weird situations that might happen during our election cycle. The tests use generative AI to fake the voices of the Secretary of State and others in his office who gave their consent. One recreation, Fontes says, was especially impressive. They took a special recording of that person and then they put it in through some proprietary AI software and they had this individual almost dead to rights and they had this person speaking in German fluently and speaking in Mandarin Chinese fluently. And it was as if this person was actually speaking those languages. So this was kind of sort of a reveal for elections officials and all of our partners in county government here in Arizona. I asked Fontes about vigilance in the run-up to November's elections. The bottom line is this. AI is not all terrible. There are tons of benefits to it, but it's the stuff we need to be careful of that we're training for. And really what it comes down to is the basics. If we are following basic process, basic protocol, basic procedures, double-checking whenever something happens before making major decisions regarding our operations or sharing information, we're going to be in pretty good shape coming into what could be a hostile environment. Do you feel that most people believe that they are smart enough or savvy enough to be able to tell the difference and then are completely wrong? Well, I don't know what most people think. All I know is it was impressive to me, uh, and the technology is improving at a really, really fast pace. You know, six to 12 months ago, you would have been able to tell pretty easily that some of the generative AI deepfakes were deepfakes. Now it's much more difficult, particularly when it's voice only. You know, so many people believe the American voting system is corrupt. How do you persuade voters that what they do at the polls, that their vote is accurately recorded and that elections aren't rigged or stolen? Well, I think it's a basic dispelling of mythologies and basic lesson learning. Look, over the last several years, the United States of America has been experiencing a slow rolling civics lesson. We've learned a lot about how some of the inner workings of our government behave. The election administration has been sort of this dark hole, right? It's been Byzantine. People just didn't understand how technologically advanced, how many checks and balances, and how completely dependable the systems can be when they're properly run. And I would argue that the vast majority of our systems in the United States, if not all of them, are properly run. Convincing people is going to take time. Uh, you know, the lies, the misinformation and disinformation 
These are anti-American activities uh, that we're just dealing with, right? And we will get past them. The conduct of elections will not only be seen as that basic government function that we've always been able to depend on again, but also I hope that, you know, the federal government and state governments across the United States will sustainably fund these activities. Because right now, election administration is the only critical infrastructure in the country that does not have sustained federal funding. And that's a problem that we're going to have to deal with real soon. You know, it feels like the AI genie is way, way out of the bottle, Secretary. If we were having this conversation, say, 20, 30 years from now, when it comes to elections, I mean, what kind of conversations do you think we're going to be having? Well, who knows in 20 or 30 years where we're going to be. But, you know, the bottom line is that we still have to deal with what we're dealing with now. We still have to convince people of the reality, right? And it's unfortunate that we have to kind of like campaign our way to the truth. For example, in Arizona, there's no such thing as a voting machine. Every ballot is cast on paper. That's been true uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, And yet these mythologies pop up all over the place. And the sad thing is you've got elected officials and people who are running for office who are still peddling these lies. They're grifting. They're just not serious people. We know there's no evidence of widespread fraud. We know there's no evidence of undependability or major issues in any of our election systems in the country. We all know this. Serious people know this. And so I think folks who are invested in our economy, invested in arts and culture, invested in sciences, invested uh, in technology and everything else, they understand that elections administration is the golden thread. I'm really hoping that our better angels will help us to understand that the administration of elections in the United States of America has and will continue to be accountable, secure, We can keep making it more open and more free for more citizens to participate. And that's really the goal here. Uh, We just got to keep our nose to the grindstone, be solid in our work. And I think eventually folks will come around. That's Arizona Secretary of State, Adrian Fuentes. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. This is NPR News. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, Ukraine and Russia exchanged hundreds of prisoners of war in what officials in Kyiv are describing as the biggest swamp since the current conflict began. It's 820. I'm Robin Young. A new investigation finds dying broke is what most older Americans are doing, and caring for a loved one is a real struggle. To deal with the emotional issues, which are huge, to deal with what this does to family dynamics, and then to add on top of it the affordability or lack thereof makes it just confounding to many people. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Highs in the low 40s today under mostly cloudy skies. It clears up tonight as temperatures fall to the low 20s. Sunny to end the week tomorrow will have highs in the mid-30s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday. With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. 
More information is available at scisimsfoundation.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. What will it take for Israel to declare mission accomplished in Gaza and end the war? That's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu promising Israelis, quote, we will continue to fight until the definitive victory over Hamas. The offensive in Gaza has killed over 22,000 Palestinians, according to health officials there, and caused vast destruction. But there's growing debate in Israel about what kind of victory is even achievable. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. The most prominent group of Israelis pushing to change Israel's war strategy is made up of Israeli citizens whose relatives were dragged into Gaza when Hamas attacked Israel October 7th. We are standing outside Israel's military headquarters and the families of hostages still held in Gaza are blocking traffic, preventing military officials from driving in and out of the headquarters. Every hour they stop the traffic here and they read the names of more than a hundred hostages still held in Gaza. The government says the military campaign in Gaza will eventually pressure Hamas into releasing more hostages. These families of hostages say Israel should put the combat on hold and strike a deal with Hamas immediately. The slogan of destroying Hamas, it's an empty slogan. Udi Gorin has a cousin who was killed in the October 7th attack on southern Israel. His body is being held in Gaza. It's impossible to get rid of Hamas, not only because it's an ideology, but also because we're talking about over 20,000 militants. We're talking about miles of underground tunnels. We're talking about a war that's now going on in an urban area that has about 2 million refugees and hostages. The IDF is fighting with his hand tied behind its back. It's very clear that we need to find a ladder to climb down. Voices from Israel's center-left are seeking a pragmatic deal with Hamas and searching for ways to redefine victory. There is no victory because they came in and murdered 1,200 of our people. So we lost already. Dana Hellman is one of the protesters outside military headquarters. What I know for a fact is that if Israel will not have the hostages back and will not do everything to bring them home safely, not in body bags, safely, then Israel will never be the same again. The former spymaster of Israel's Mossad intelligence agency, Yossi Cohen, was interviewed on Israeli army radio last week. The anchor's first question was, when will we know that we've won? His answer, we'll know we've won when we've captured or killed the leaders of Hamas. It's about delivering a cautionary warning to the region, says Michael Milstein, former head of Palestinian affairs in Israeli military intelligence. If, for example, the final results of this war would be occupation of Gaza, huge, broad destruction of this place, killing thousands of Hamas uh, members, and of course, killing the head of the snake, it will have a very dramatic impact on enemies like Hezbollah, like the Iranians, like Syria, that no, you cannot promote such a brutal, violent moves against Israel without any payment. 
A senior Hamas official in Lebanon was killed this week in a drone strike, but Israel's most wanted man, the leader of Hamas in Gaza, is still at large. Milstein says the promise of full victory against Hamas's guerrilla warfare is an illusion. I don't think that we can speak about, you know, victory in such conditions. I do think that Israel can achieve some prominent results. Week by week, Israel announces more Hamas tunnels destroyed, more Hamas fighters killed. But the Israeli soldier death toll keeps climbing, and Hamas is still putting up a fight on the ground and firing rockets at Israel. Voices on Israel's right say Israel is not going far enough. 19-year-old Tal Usach at a bus stop outside military headquarters says there will only be 50% victory in Gaza. He says 100% victory would be for Israel to take over Gaza forever and make sure every single Palestinian there moves to neighboring countries. That is an example of the right-wing pressure facing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Even some politicians in his own governing coalition say he's being too soft on the Palestinians. So with all these conflicting demands, how long will Netanyahu continue the war? If it was up to Netanyahu, this would continue for quite some time. Ruven Chazan teaches politics at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He says Netanyahu will face tough questions when the war ends. It's expected a commission will investigate who's responsible for the security failures that resulted in the Hamas attack. Plus, Netanyahu's own corruption trial continues. And polls show his approval ratings have dropped during the war. There could be calls for a new election. For Netanyahu to end the war in Gaza, even with a victory, means he has to start dealing with the political issues at home and the legal issues, which he does not want to. Israel's Supreme Court this week struck down Netanyahu's signature legislation that curtailed the court's powers. His judicial overhaul fueled massive protests before the war. If the war drags on and Netanyahu's onslaught on the judicial branch returns, then you will see Israelis back in the streets. But this time, it won't be half the population. It'll be significantly more than half the population. And the government cannot survive that for too long. This week, Israel is starting to pull out thousands of reservist soldiers from Gaza so they can return to their jobs and boost the lagging economy. Israel could slowly transition from the big ground invasion of Gaza to a lower-intensity conflict, like the U.S. has called for. But fighting is escalating with Lebanese militants on Israel's northern border. The reckoning facing Netanyahu might come soon, even as the country could still remain at war. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, why this week's deadly plane collision on a Tokyo runway is being hailed as an example of safety rules saving lives. It's 8.29.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Giovanni. Chief of the Israeli Intelligence Service David Barnea says Israel is committed to settling the score with the murderers involved in the October 7th attack on Israel. The Mossad chief spoke a day after the deputy head of Hamas was killed in a blast in Beirut. Israel has not commented on accusations that it was behind the Beirut strike. The Justice Department has made good on its promise to sue Texas over a new immigration law. The Texas newsroom's Julian Aguiar reports the state's legislature passed it late last year. The lawsuit announced Wednesday by the Department of Justice alleges that Texas's Senate Bill 4 is unconstitutional because immigration enforcement is solely the federal government's responsibility and not up to individual states. Senate Bill 4 was passed in November and makes unauthorized entry from Mexico into Texas a state crime. It also gives state judges the authority to order a migrant to return to Mexico, regardless of their nationality. The lawsuit is the second one filed in less than a month. In late December, a group of civil rights groups sued to stop SB4's implementation, alleging it was discriminatory and unconstitutional. Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott has said he thinks the law is legal, but added that he welcomed the court challenge, which could end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Julian Aguilar in El Paso. Dow futures are up 83. NASDAQ futures in negative territory off 29. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Incidents of domestic violence in Massachusetts are on the rise. That's according to the latest state report on the issue. It says that between 2020 and 2022, domestic violence assaults increased by more than 400 incidents. In the same period, the number of people killed by domestic violence increased by 7 to 28 deaths in 2022. Officials recommend increased education and public awareness efforts to help address the problem. The country's first large-scale offshore wind project is now generating electricity. The Vineyard Wind Project achieved so-called first power late Tuesday night when the first turbine near Martha's Vineyard fed power into the grid. Maggie Downey is the administrator of the renewable energy provider Cape Light Compact. She calls this a turning point in meeting the state's climate goals. We need everything we can get regarding our clean energy future, and this is a giant step forward for helping us meet our Global Warming Solutions Act. The project will eventually bring more than 60 turbines online. That's expected to generate enough electricity to power more than 400,000 homes. A new report from the state recommends ways to manage forests to help Massachusetts achieve its climate goals. The Healy administration says it'll spend $50 million to help municipalities, state agencies, and private landowners implement the recommendations. More now from WBUR's Paula Mora. Experts analyzed the latest climate science about how to maximize carbon storage in forests. Their report recommends increasing the amount of protected forest land. It also suggests the states minimize timber harvests where possible, but acknowledges that state officials must take into consideration the needs of the timber industry. Chris Egan is with the Massachusetts Forest Alliance, a forestry association. He says he's concerned about how the changes could impact them economically. There's going to be questions about how those recommendations from the committee get incorporated into what the state actually does on the ground. The state is taking public comments on the report. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Boston's new professional women's hockey team made its debut last night in Lowell. 
Boston lost to Minnesota 3-2. The team's next game is Monday at home against Ottawa. The Bruins return to the Garden tonight to skate with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Mostly cloudy and highs in the low 40s today. The clouds move out tonight as it falls to the low 20s. A sunny Friday tomorrow, but colder with highs in the mid-30s. The clouds move back in on Saturday for a mostly cloudy day with highs in the upper 30s. We'll see light snow starting late Saturday night and lasting through Sunday. It's 37 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Hundreds of Ukrainian and Russian prisoners of war were exchanged yesterday. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said it is the largest such prisoner swap since the full-scale Russian invasion almost two years ago. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny is in Kiev. Uh, Alyssa, so who exactly is included in this exchange? So on the Ukraine side, there were 230 soldiers and civilians released. Among them, soldiers that defended the eastern port city of Mariupol and the Azovstov steel plant there. There are Ukrainian soldiers who were captured at Snake Island in the Black Sea. Those were some of the first to be captured in this war, and they became a symbol of Ukraine's resistance. Russia received 248 soldiers, according to the Russian Minister of Defense. Ukrainian officials shared a video of the prisoners arriving back to Ukraine, and you can hear the men asking, Are we home? Are we really home? Wow, must feel great to be home. Um, How common, uh, Alyssa, are these prisoner exchanges? Well, you know, it's actually been a while since Russia and Ukraine did a POW exchange. The last one took place in early August, so that's almost five months ago. In a video message, Ukraine President Zelensky said that even though there was a pause in the exchanges, there was not a pause in the negotiations. A statement from Russian military officials say the deal, which was brokered by the United Arab Emirates, followed complex negotiations. And what's the reaction been in Ukraine? Relief, <laughs> jubilation, yeah. honestly, some shock. We reached Yaroslav Ahadzi on her way to meet her boyfriend, Alexander, a border guard and medic who was captured on Snake Island nearly two years ago. She told us she was overwhelmed with emotions. She's saying, we have been waiting for this call about his release for 22 months, and finally the day has come. Alexander will turn 23 years old at the end of this month, and she told us she is so grateful that they're going to be able to celebrate his birthday in his native Ukraine with their families. Yeah, families getting reunited, always a good thing. Uh, Alyssa, <laughs> I've got to wonder, though, and maybe it's just a cynical yeah. side of me here, why, why this exchange now? Well, the timing is interesting. You know, in the last several weeks, there have been instances that appear to show that Russia is violating the Geneva Convention on Prisoners of War. Drone footage posted by Ukrainian military officials claimed to show Russian forces executing Ukrainian POWs, a Geneva Convention violation. There have been allegations of Russia using Ukrainian POWs as human shields in combat, another violation. I talked with Carolina Hurd from the Institute for the Study of War about this. Let's listen. 
So the timing of this suggests to me that Russia is very interested in creating this kind of semblance of legality and morality over its very illegal war in Ukraine. She said this POW exchange appears to show Russia trying to counter those allegations. And of course, this news comes at a time when Russia's really been hammering uh, major cities just like Kyiv, where you are right now, uh, with large-scale missile attacks. That's right. In the last week, Ukraine has faced hundreds of missiles. Air defenses are working, but in a lot of places where civilians live and work, there have been hits, including an apartment building in Kyiv. It was there that we met Irina Kartnikova, who lives on the sixth floor. We've lost everything, she told us. We have nothing. We are homeless now. And A, when we were talking, her face and her hands were still covered in black soot. And she just kept shaking her head in disbelief. Wow. That's Alyssa Nedwarney reporting from Kyiv. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cities along the border are experiencing a surge of migrants crossing into the U.S. from Mexico. In fact, border crossings have hit record numbers this season. That's why Republican members of Congress toured the southern border this week, calling on President Biden to crack down on the flow of migrants. A similar dynamic is playing out in Mexico, where authorities have broken up a migrant caravan in their southern border. NPR's Ader Peralta has been traveling with the caravan, and he joins us now from the road. Hi, Ader. Hey, good morning, Lila. Good morning. So what have you been seeing and hearing as you make this journey? Well, I heard a lot of hope, and then I heard a lot of that hope turn into agony. Uh, This big caravan left from Tapachula, which is a city near the Guatemalan border, on Christmas Eve. uh, Some of the migrants had spent months in southern Mexico, hoping that authorities would give them permits to move through the country. Uh, They were frustrated, so a good 5,000 of them started walking north to pressure the government. And Tuesday, it looked like the government had caved. The government uh, started sending a bunch of buses over and told them, we'll take you to a nearby town and process you. So get on the buses. But it wasn't long before the migrants found out that immigration officials were lying about where they were sending them. And authorities also started separating families. So the migrants started trying to get off the buses and it was chaos. Uh, Let's listen to Gabriela Fernandez Rivero, who was separated from her boyfriend. We have no idea where they're taking us. We have no idea what they're going to do. They don't give us any answers. That man at the end is shouting, they're separating kids. He was angry. He was calling immigration authorities killers. Do we know what ultimately happened to those people? I mean, this caravan of migrants uh, has been a headache for the president of Mexico. He said President Biden called him to tell him that he was worried about uh, how many migrants were crossing the U.S. border. Uh, And Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador said he had taken care of it. And now what was a very visible migrant caravan is no more. Uh, That woman and a good two or three thousand migrants were put on buses uh, and they ended up in a bunch of little towns across southern Mexico. We managed to track down a group uh, that was left in a tiny town near Tuxla and and I found Maria Isabel Tovar who was desperately looking for her son. He had just turned 18 and she says the bus that they were on made a sudden stop and authorities told her son to get off and they told her to stay on. Let's listen. Tanto, tanto que yo pasé trabajo. Mm. 
And she's been traveling for months from Venezuela. It's been so hard, she says, traveled through so many countries and just to lose my son this way. I don't know. She keeps repeating. I don't know. I mean, is this is this normal to move migrants, separate them this way? It is, and it gives you a glimpse at uh, Mexican immigration policy. Uh, what authorities are doing is trying to make it harder and harder for migrants to reach the border within the U.S. And migrants' rights advocates here say that the U.S. has actually managed to build a wall on its southern border, and they say that that wall is Mexico. That's NPR's Ader Peralta reporting from Tuxla in southern Mexico. Thank you, Ader. Thank you, Leila. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report examines how community colleges are faring in Texas after the state changed the way it funds those institutions in response to rising enrollment. Low 40s and mostly cloudy today. Low 20s and windy tonight. Skies clear overnight for a sunny day tomorrow in the mid-30s, then mostly cloudy and upper 30s on Saturday before WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says the snow arrives. So our weekend storm is coming into focus. Snow expected to arrive Saturday late evening and continue through Sunday. There may be a changeover to rain in the city and the coast, and we'll see how far inland that pushes. That will keep amounts lower in Boston, the highest totals inland and north and west of where that rain snow line sets up. Some hazardous travel will result. Plows, crews will be out. The height of the storm Sunday morning to midday with snow tapering gradually through the evening hours. So stay tuned for more on exact amounts, timing, and specific impacts. It's 37 degrees in Boston. In business news, UMass Memorial Health in Worcester is planning to add add 72 inpatient hospital beds. It'll do that by converting a former rehabilitation and nursing center it owns. It bought the center back in 2021. The facility is across the street from its main campus. The plan still needs final approval from the city and the state. A drug testing company is moving its headquarters from Acton to Texas. Psychomedics says the move to Dallas will help it better serve customers and streamline its operations. The company is known for its tests that use strands of hair to look for signs of drug use. It's unclear how the move will affect local workers. The Worcester Regional Airport gets a new destination today. JetBlue will begin flying twice a week between Worcester and Fort Myers, Florida. The service will become daily next month. JetBlue already flies from Worcester to Orlando Orlando, and Fort Lauderdale. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales. Committed to going beyond the classroom by helping students develop networks and experience in fields like healthcare, business, and cybersecurity. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org/learning. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Japan Airlines Flight 516 caught fire after it collided with a small Coast Guard plane at a Tokyo airport on Tuesday. 
While five people on the Coast Guard plane died, crew and passengers on the Japan Airlines flight have been praised for quickly and safely evacuating all 379 people on board. So what does it take to pull off a flight evacuation? President of the Association of Flight Attendants, Sarah Nelson, joins us now to discuss. Uh, Sarah, what was your reaction to the crash in Japan? The reaction was this is exactly what we're trained for. These flight attendants executed their jobs perfectly. But this is, of course, not the kind of day at work that we want to have. No, it's, here's the thing. I think so many people fly and I think our heads are somewhere else that we don't necessarily know or care what the overarching mission for flight attendants are from the moment they board a plane to when they disembark. What is that overarching mission, Sarah? The purpose of being on the plane is to be able to evacuate passengers in 90 seconds when there is an accident just exactly like this. That is the reason that in the 1950s, the FAA made sure that there's a minimum number of flight attendants on all aircraft. All aircraft are certified for an evacuation that determines that minimum number. And so that is our primary purpose. In addition to dealing with medical emergencies, um, dealing with potential terrorist attacks, um, we're there for your safety, first and foremost. That's that's our purpose. We're thinking about it all the time. We go through rigorous training for that. We go through recurrent rigorous training for that. We do silent reviews before every flight. And we've we've got that top of mind every day when we go to work. So to be clear, not to bring you wine or a blanket or help you with the Wi-Fi, right? It's, it's to, get, to get you safely off the plane at some point. Look, we like doing those things, and uh, we also like to keep everybody calm. Jamming a bunch of humanity into a metal tube is sometimes really tough, and doing some of those things kind of helps people get through the whole situation. It's all about safety for everybody, but that is not our primary purpose. Our primary purpose is to make sure that you're safe doing this magical thing of flight that we can only do if everybody follows the rules, and those rules are in place because we've been able to um, make adjustments in aviation based on on other accidents, make adjustments to make sure that it is the safest mode of transportation in the world. What is that safety training like? You mentioned uh, how rigorous it is. We go through drills to make sure that you can open any kind of aircraft. Many flight attendants fly on different aircraft, different types of configuration, depending upon their aircraft training. Uh, we have repetitive drills that give us very clear commands to passengers because people go into shock into situations like this. We do that three-minute safety video at the beginning of the flight. We hope people pay attention. But in a crisis, people need to be given clear instruction about what to do. And we have clear actions about what we have to do. These flight attendants also had to deal with with the fact that many of the exits were blocked, that they had to redirect people, that they had to make sure people were not bringing their bags and jamming things up, that people were not rushing to the door and creating a, a jam up for the exit route. Uh, and uh, so that was their, their primary focus and that's what we're trained to do. We're trained to look for our leaders and the people who need clear instruction and the people who might be problems who we may have to deal with. Really, really quick, Sarah, what's the one thing people need to keep in mind if they find themselves in that situation in Japan? <laughs> the one thing they should keep in mind is, uh, first, they need to listen to that safety video. Second, they need to listen for those clear instructions from flight attendants. And I'm just going to say, make sure your shoes are on for takeoff and landing, because that's most often when there's going to be a problem and you don't want to be dealing with that in, the, in this situation. Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on threats by Hezbollah to retaliate for the killing of a top Hamas leader. 
plus the story of an Oklahoma man freed from prison 48 years after he was wrongfully convicted. It's 849. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org, and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Documents related to accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein were made public but show little information that wasn't already known. Former President Donald Trump is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to keep his name on the ballot in Colorado. And new research finds people who use hearing aids to combat hearing loss increase their chances of living longer. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Summer Orchestra Institute at New England Conservatory. For students 13 through 18, priority registration ends February 4th. Apply at necmusic.edu. Mostly cloudy and low 40s today, mostly clear and low 20s tonight, sunny and mid-30s tomorrow, mostly cloudy and upper 30s on Saturday with snow starting late Saturday night and lasting through Sunday. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Drone and missile attacks by militants on container ships in the Red Sea could soon contribute to global inflation. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by Betterment, the automated investing platform that helps make it easy to be invested for the long term. Learn more at betterment.com. Investing involves risk. I'm David Brancaccio. A company that runs a booking platform for international cargo says shipping rates have more than doubled for certain routes through the Red Sea after attacks on ships in the region. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. Shipping rates have increased the most for routes between Asia and Europe and the Mediterranean. But booking platform Freydos says rates are also rising for shipments headed to North America. That's in large part because avoiding the Red Sea means ships have to take a longer route around the African continent. Prices began skyrocketing over the New Year's weekend after Yemen's Houthi rebels on boats sped toward a container ship operated by Maersk while firing at the vessel. The shipping giant, along with rival Hapag Lloyd, canceled plans to resume some shipments through the Red Sea. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Market, since the weekend, the Nasdaq stock index has fallen 2.8%. The S&P has fallen 1.4%. This morning, Nasdaq futures are down four-tenths of a percent. S&P futures, I see, are a little changed. And Dow futures are up two-tenths percent. There's news just now. A private sector count of people on payrolls finds 164,000 more people were on those payrolls in December. This is a stronger than expected outcome. This uses the payroll company ADP's data. The official hiring and unemployment reports don't come out until tomorrow morning. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on. That's why Schwab has financial consultants ready to serve their clients, plus professional answers and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. A bill in the California legislature would create a first-of-its-kind agency to administer economic reparations for slavery, if lawmakers were to approve reparations in that state. State Senator Stephen Bradford introduced the bill to create the agency last summer with a vote possible in the California legislature this year, but that would just be the first step. Elected officials in California would also have to approve reparations and money for them. Among key questions, what should reparations look like and who would be eligible? Here's reporter Lee Hawkins with a second part of our series this week. Eligibility was a topic of fierce debate for the California Reparations Task Force as it put together an 1,100-page report that was published in June. Here's where they landed. Economic reparations should only be granted to black American residents whose lineage can be traced back to enslaved ancestors or to those who arrived before the 20th century. Task Force member and UC Berkeley professor Jovan Scott Lewis played a major role in shaping this, despite coming to the United States from Jamaica. The policies that we're talking about, the history of policies, were directed towards this particular community that emerged out of slavery in this country. You're talking about the Black Code, you're talking about Jim Crow, you know, you're talking about these foundational policies being directed against a very particular community. California State Senator Stephen Bradford was also on the task force. He sees paying reparations to only Black people who meet these criteria as an important first step. It's a hierarchy. We want to start with those folks who are clearly descendants of 250 years of wage theft in this country, first and foremost. And then we're going to kind of build out from there. Bradford's agency would have the job of determining which candidates meet the criteria, mainly by looking at a range of historical records, things like baptism certificates, mortgages, life insurance policies, church records, and other legal documents. In the United States, government policies have historically favored white Americans, leading to a significant wealth gap with black Americans. In California, this wealth gap is wide. One study showed that in Los Angeles, the median value of liquid assets for native-born African-American households was $200, compared to $110,000 for white households. Lewis pointed out that the task force cited discriminatory 20th century policies such as redlining, black people being denied the GI Bill, and segregation in education. You know, people forget that University of California as a public institution used to be free. And it was only until the Civil Rights Act, right? You know, at the point when African-Americans began attending the University of California, that then-Governor Ronald Reagan institutes an actual tuition fee. The Reverend Dr. Amos Brown, president of the San Francisco NAACP, who was also on the California State Reparations Task Force, believes the proposal could eventually be expanded to include Black folks not descending from slavery in the U.S., but he stressed the importance of not compromising this effort now. I think we have to understand, if we get one battle through, 
the next battle can be for those from the Caribbean. And you got to remember, there are other countries who owe something. You got to begin somewhere. While the experience of Blackness is shared globally, he said, the specific harms and policies in the U.S. were directed at a very distinct community. Lewis says the task force approved its eligibility recommendation by a narrow vote of five to four. It's proof of just how complex and sensitive the reparations issue promises to be in 2024, including within the Black American community. It was really important because there is a community who has been fundamentally harmed in this country through slavery and through the policies that followed slavery. And, and that particular community does deserve recognition. And reparations is one way to provide that recognition. Our series with reporter Lee Hawkins is called Golden Promises, the battle over slavery reparations in California. Tomorrow we'll look at alternatives to reparations that some see as more politically feasible. One extra note of context, California now faces a budget deficit in the range of $68 billion. All of our stories are accumulating at marketplace.org if you miss them on the air. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Mostly overcast today. Temperatures will rise to the low 40s. Clouds clear out tonight and it'll be in the low 20s. Sunny for our Friday tomorrow in the mid-30s. It grows overcast again on Saturday and will be in the upper 30s. Snow starts late Saturday night and lasts through Sunday. It's 37 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.